The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Squawk Box. In your headlines, Wall Street rebounds as big tech bouncing back. But U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning CNBC any delay to extending the debt ceiling will have dire consequences. By failing to pay any of our bills that come due um, would really be a catastrophic outcome. I, I recognize. I fully expect I, I it would cause a recession as well. Gas prices spiking again on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, igniting fresh inflationary concerns as UK 10-year gilt yields hit two-year highs. The OECD moves one step closer to striking a global tax deal as members remove two key words from the draft and US State Secretary Antony Blinken urges countries to make a final push. A shared approach on taxation will end this race, level the playing field, stabilize the international tax system. It will advance greater equity between nations, making it easier for developing countries to collect tax revenues and fund development priorities. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg breaks his silence, rejecting claims the social network prioritizes profits over safety, as whistleblower Francis Hogan testifies on the Hill. Mark holds a very unique role in uh, the tech industry in that he holds uh, over 55% of all the voting shares for Facebook. Um, there are no similarly powerful companies that are as uh, unilaterally controlled. Um, and in, in the end, the buck stops with Mark. Meanwhile, problems for the Entente Cordiale. Uh, France threatening to review its bilateral agreements uh, with the UK and cut off energy supplies as the post-Brexit fish fight continues. So let's start off in the United States. U.S. President Biden has uh, said Democrats may look to push forward with a one-time change to filibuster rules in order to keep Republicans from blocking a measure to lift the debt ceiling. If implemented, the extraordinary rule change would prevent GOP Senate members from using the parliamentary procedure to delay or prevent a simple vote on the matter before October the 18th, when the Treasury says the government could run out of funds. Uh, meanwhile, Biden's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned a failure to pay off government debt could be, quote, catastrophic to the U.S. economy. In an exclusive CNBC interview, uh, Yellen urged Democratic leaders in Congress to find a way to raise the debt ceiling after Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell told the president his party would play no part in such measures. The Treasury Secretary stressing the importance of maintaining confidence in the American economy. U.S. Treasury securities are, have long been viewed as the safest asset on the planet that, that partly accounts for the um, reserve status of the dollar and um, placing that in question by failing to pay any of our bills that come due um, would really be a catastrophic outcome. 
I, I, I recognize I fully I, expect I, I it would cause a recession as well. It's really up to uh, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer to figure out how to get this done um, in Congress. Um, what I can tell you is that it's utterly essential that this be done. Uh, I've said that by the 18th of October, we will uh, be out of extraordinary measures, have limited cash, and likely to exhaust it very quickly. Um, and so I do regard October 18th as a deadline. Uh, it would be catastrophic to not pay the government's bills. It would be catastrophic to not pay the government's bills. But does anybody actually believe that the debt ceiling extension is not going to happen? Uh, of all the things that are uncertainties and maybe and coulds, I think that's probably the one that is going to get nailed down at this point. There'll just be a certain amount of hooing and hawing about how it actually gets resolved. I think the more interesting question for me is just, really where we are in terms of the market's connection with interest rates, the economic data, and ultimately the Fed's perception of inflationary pressures. And we're going to get on to hearing lots of clips. Um, I think later on, Evans was speaking. He says 3 to 4% inflation uh, could be uh, concerning, could be a challenge. Obviously, the ISM services numbers that we had yesterday were encouraging and suggest that the US economy is still weathering the COVID storm relatively well at this point. But with a strong dollar and uncertainty around the taper still, raises some questions about where you invest in emerging markets or whether you continue to put money to work in growth stocks in the United States. And all of this, of course, with just this noise at the moment from Democrats around exactly how the infrastructure deal is going to be structured. To me, it feels like a distraction that is really unnecessary at the moment as we focus on the macroeconomics. What you point out is a lot of noise around already a volatile period for the markets. And I think if you really get into the weeds on this story, it looks as though Republicans are trying to tie this conversation to a broader one about whether there should be as much spending in the United States at this point in the economic cycle. And But uh, unfortunately, what we're talking about here when it comes to a debt ceiling is that t very old argument that this is money that's already been approved for spending. It's not really about spending more at this point. So the debt ceiling in some ways is a Democrat's argument that it should be a bipartisan approach that both sides should not be using this for political purposes. But if you get into the weeds on this and you look at the, the market positioning, I mean, Moody's is perhaps a read in the ratings agency. They think that the Democrats will circle back and come up with some sort of budget reconciliation process, which is effectively taking the long way around. And uh, the Democrats are saying we don't have the time to do all that unless you make some concessions and changes. We really can't go through this entire process and lift the debt ceiling by mid-October when we're expected to run out of money. So I think there is a little bit of a mismatch between the perception of markets about how this gets resolved versus what the Democrats are saying at this point. They still think that the Republicans should weigh in here and it should be a joint effort on lifting that debt ceiling, Steve. Yeah, yeah. good morning to you both. Uh, I, I slightly disagree with, 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 with Jeff uh, that it will get solved um, uh, with, with a certain amount of, I think I'll quote, hooing and hawing because I just, I look at the parties involved and I look at the three disputes 
uh, on Capitol Hill. It's not one, it's three, as we've been pointing out for weeks here as well. Of course, the disputes over the trillion dollar infrastructure bill, the three and a half trillion dollar, although inevitably be much smaller, uh, Build Back Better bill, plus the debt ceiling as well. And I can't help thinking that there are so many whack-a-mole disputes. Out of it. It's like something out of, I don't know, Gary Cooper in High Noon. Uh, and and I, I think because there is intransigence within the Democrat Party towards other Democrats as well, this is where the president has really lost control of the narrative as well. Because uh, as has been pointed out, during the election, the presidential election, the Democrats managed to just calm down some of their disputes between the progressives and the conservatives. Now they're fully back out in the open, as many people, quite rightly, forecast they would be as well. So you've got the Democrats versus the Democrats as well, which potentially could take away um, the reconciliation route for getting the debt ceiling raised. Now, I've seen some outlandish uh, proposals, including the 14th Amendment from 1868. I, I saw in the FT today the possibility of, wait for it, Yellen printing or minting a trillion dollar platinum coin, depositing this uh, at the Federal Reserve and then being able to use that to pay the US bills as well. So there's some absolutely outlandish routes that are being talking here, talking here. But if it was just purely Republicans versus Democrats, I think the reconciliation route would look fairly clear. But because it's um, Democrats versus Democrats on a whole host of issues, I think this makes it stunningly complicated, which doesn't negate, of course, anything you both were saying, of course, uh, on inflation uh, and indeed on the uh, the market perception as well, because the market is blithely ignoring any of that as well uh, and um, continuing on its uh, great strength strides, which Karen will be talking about in a few moments time after I've talked about this, which just goes unnoticed almost. But how about this? America's August trade deficit jumped by 4.2% to a record. This is a record level of 73.3 billion US dollars. So for all the talk of presidents past and presidents about improving US productivity, about improving the trade deficit, and we heard a lot about this, of course, under the, the former incumbent at the White House as well, we've still just had a record trade deficit in August. Now, well above expectations, imports increased by over 385 billion US dollars compared with the same period of 2020, with businesses apparently, I would say apparently, focusing on rebuilding inventories. Now, the reading comes despite a slight uptick in service sector activity to 61.9 in September. But the Institute for Supply Management said activity continues to be held back by input shortages and higher prices amid some of the ongoing problems associated with the pandemic. Now, the aforementioned market seemed to be back on the front foot again yesterday, Karen. Yeah, a couple of usual suspects too, leading the market higher this time round. If you look at uh, some of the big movers for the likes of the Dow, Goldman Sachs out in front. So one of the big banks that we've seen a lot of action in in recent months and uh, Microsoft for the S&P and the Nasdaq. And as we've had that market wobble and fade, a couple of the big stocks had really uh, come off uh, some of the, the highs that we witnessed and uh, particularly in the technology sector where Microsoft, Apple had seen a little bit of fade in recent sessions, but back in business and you can see the Nasdaq rallying one and a quarter percent leading the charge, uh, more than one percent on the S&P 500 and the Dow jumping nine tenths of a percent. But plenty of issues to weigh up what's happening on the Hill and Congress and this debt ceiling spending packages and not to mention the oil price as well, which is 
triggered a few concerns around inflation and what could be coming from the central banks if we don't see that oil price cool off. And that has very strong links to the technology sector because if you look at big tech stocks, uh, that is an area of the market that has been a little bit concerned about a rising yield environment eventually. But some of those concerns parked. One of the biggest movers was Netflix. That stock up more than 5%. Uh, The likes of uh, Facebook well and truly in the middle of concerns around fresh regulation, its handling of its users and uh, whether it's doing more harm than good. And don't forget, we've been talking a lot about ESG. The S in that equation is important as we talk about Facebook now. So uh, that stock, uh, 2% higher, bouncing back. Tesla, one of the weak spots on the boards. Uh, US banks, by comparison, we did see a lot of action here too. I mentioned uh, Goldman Sachs, that stock up 3.1%, but uh, not too far behind. Bank of America, strong. Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, all exhibiting very strong behaviour during the trading session. All this as Treasuries again marched higher. We are perched a little bit firmer again on this US 10-year yield. And that's a positive backdrop for some of these banks looking for margin expansion. 1.56% is where we are now sitting on that US 10-year yield. The Asian markets, uh, let's just circle over there. Given the handover from Wall Street, do you think it would be slightly firmer than this? But uh, we've been watching a fade on the Japanese market and uh, continues to pull further away from that 30,000 point handle. You can see down eight tenths of a percent. China is still out of action at this point. Hong Kong trades weaker. Australia off uh, six tenths of a percent and South Korea also pulling back. But one of the big concerns has been the, the speed and the escalation, the energy price, what that means for the region. But also, I think, uh, some of the sentiment knocked by the rate hike we saw out of New Zealand. A little bit far south for some of these markets, but still instrumental as we talk about the Asia-Pacific region region where we've seen tightening now from a central bank, a 25 basis point move today on that cash rate. Let's get to the opening calls. So this is how Europe is setting up for the trade. After what was a firmer trade yesterday, we were up about 1.2% on the stock ship 600. Very strong showing. And of the core markets, so the French market was up about 1.5%. So outpacing the broader market. This morning, we looked like we we're setting up for a give-back trade. And you can see a 44 to the downside on that French market. A triple-digit point loss anticipated for the Zetradax. So it is a weak outing we're seeing early on, Jeff. Karen, thank you very much. Uh, Let's talk uh, some more then about the commentary from Fed speakers. The Chicago Fed's Charles Evans has blamed inflationary pressures on supply shortages, saying it's an infrastructure issue rather than a monetary problem. But Evans told CNBC in an exclusive interview these pressures are transitory. I'm comfortable thinking that uh, these are elevated prices, that they will be coming down as the supply bottlenecks are addressed. I think it could be longer than we were expecting. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But I think the continuing increase in these prices is unlikely. I think they could stay at a high level, but they won't be, I don't expect them to be growing, ever growing. And so I think that means that the inflation indices will be coming down. Well, let's bring Patrick Armstrong into the conversation. Patrick is CIO of Plurimi Investment Managers. Patrick, good morning to you. As I read your notes, uh, it appears that you are in the camp that believes it is right to buy the dip right now. So as we try and calibrate the risk from this debt ceiling story, how important do you think it really is to investor mindsets and how we think about the risk uh, and reward opportunity at this stage? I think it's first and foremost um, in the the sell-off we had over the last 10 days or so. Um, uh, The debt ceiling, it's uh, catastrophic if they don't fix it, but it's a very, very slim chance uh, that we don't get get it addressed as we have hundreds of times before. 
Um, the debt ceiling, unfortunately, his purpose is only to create political posturing, grandstanding, and uh, it's serving that purpose. They don't get rid of it because both sides like to have that when they're in the minority, um, when they want to make a point to the president. And th that's his only purpose, really. So I do think something will get agreed. I don't know which way it will get agreed, but... Uh, because it would be catastrophic if it wasn't. Uh, you will see one side blink or maybe both come to some compromise where they both save face. So, so just to be clear here, you, you don't see it having a significant negative effect on the economic recovery at this stage. I mean, we, we had interesting services, PMIs. They appear to suggest that there is uh, still good momentum in this rebound. Um, the debt ceiling debate, the uh, posturing and brinkmanship, as you describe it, this will not undermine the growth recovery. It won't. Um, and that's uh, assuming they avoid the, the catastrophe. And I think there's a almost certainty they will just because nobody will want to create a default. And there's still options um, both sides have paths to get it done. Neither side wants to follow that path that would be easiest for them to implement. Uh, so the Republicans can just say, we won't vote, we'll, uh, we won't filibuster. They, there's still probably the reconciliation route, even though the Democrats claim there's no time. And I heard uh, Steve talking about the trillion dollar cloying under US law. The uh, Treasury can issue a coin of any denomination they want in platinum, it has to be. And that essentially can be minted given to the Fed and cancel a trillion dollars worth of debt. So um, that's something they'd want to avoid. There's credibility issues. There's probably even legality issues around it. It's just me uh, talking about it. I'm no legal professional, but professional. But that is uh, a U.S. law, and that would be a way to address it and uh, kick it down the road for as long as you want it, essentially. We're in an environment where experimental and extreme policies have been put in place. So it wouldn't shock me if we did see something as extreme as that. Patrick, I, I don't necessarily think Evergrande in itself is a problem. But if when you look at the broader Chinese property market, it shows a problem in terms of valuation uh, compared to historic levels as well. And that's why I really worry mostly not only about the Chinese property market, but about a whole host of uh, issues and, and asset classes out there as well. Are you just blindly ignoring these days real valuations? Um, I've thought a lot about Chinese property market and um, I don't think there's massive contagion risk from it, but it is a warning sign when you see governments change their policies, um, getting rid of massive credit expansion, um, moving towards regulation from deregulation, and you've got an everything bubble. Some people could characterize it as where everything's at record highs in multiples or low rental yields, builds happening based on future tenancy projections that just were unrealistic. So I don't think Evergrande is going to have a big knock-on effect on the global economy. It will have an impact on the Chinese economy, which has an impact on the global economy to some extent, obviously. But uh, it is a warning that when QE does disappear and the Fed's saying by the summer next year, QE will be done. Um, if you do move to higher interest rates, you have to start to think about the valuations a lot of things are trading at and the uh, consequences when policies do get removed. Yeah, but, but, but I guess what I'm saying is in, in a world that we have 
supposed high yield, which you and I grew up knowing as junk, uh, trading below real inflationary levels in some jurisdictions globally. You're, you're some, and I love your phrase there. I haven't actually heard it before. Everything bubble. It really just does come to the fore. So there's a very good argument once people start looking at the other side of the trade, why everything looks stunningly overpriced, isn't there? If we ever were allowed to get into a normal situation where the 10-year yield was half a percent above expected inflation, where cash rates were in line with expected inflation, where the Fed wasn't buying trillions of bonds, everything would crash. Um, and I think we're not going to be in that situation for a very long time. I think uh, steps will happen to get towards it. And the powerful forces that have been pushing everything up, I think, stay in place. Um, so to say when everything's normal, everything's completely overvalued, 100% true. Do we get back to normal? And I think that's a long way off. And I think until we get to the point where inflation is so problematic that people accept someone like Volcker who comes in and has real consequences and says we prefer unemployment to inflation, the pendulum's still way on the other side where people say, spend as much money as you can. I want to enjoy this moment, not I'm worried about how I have to pay for it. I'm not worried about the inflationary consequences. So um, I think we still have many years of these uh, very accommodative policies that will keep asset prices high. Patrick, I want to weave the energy price into the inflation outlook because I was reading one quote this morning saying oil needs to come off a, a bit, otherwise we're going to see everyone reassess inflation expectations. Uh, what do you make of that and what are you doing with the oil price? Yes, yeah, so we've added oil companies recently to our portfolio and it's a bigger risk than the pandemic um, is how I'm viewing energy prices right now, uh, particularly in Europe and China with natural gas and electricity prices. It's really having a significant headwind to economic growth. So um, classic stagflation is higher prices, slowing growth. And uh, if you do have energy prices remaining at these levels, um, particularly gas and electricity, but oil to uh, a large extent is getting there now too, you, you can't avoid stagflation. And that's toxic for asset prices if we do get into stagflation. So I do think OPEC will eventually increase their supply. Um, not all the countries have excess supply that they can turn on quickly right now. So they're incentivized to just basically get as much money as they can from the high prices right now. Um, eventually, if prices do rise much more, I think OPEC will increase their uh, production levels. Patrick, it's a choppy market out there. So perhaps some other calls too. I mean, technology, we've seen investors rush out of the sector on fears around a higher rate environment, but then only to go back into it on other days. Uh, what do you make of uh, the opportunity there? I like technology. We own Facebook. Um, we own Alphabet. And I think those are the two places where advertising revenue is just incredible. So if you do have a reopening economy, the restaurants, the hotels, the travel companies, all of them advertise and it's on Facebook and it's on uh, Google. So I like those companies. They're not at ridiculous multiples. There's antitrust regulation. That's a big risk for them. But when you're trading at 20 times earnings, 20% growth, that doesn't seem extreme. I like the semiconductor companies particularly the companies that make the equipment for other semiconductor manufacturers, Tokyo Electron, ASML, we've got a ship shortage for years ahead of us. And I think those companies basically charge what they want and have very strong revenue growth for the coming years. Patrick, just quickly, since you mentioned Facebook and that you like it, uh, the whistleblower allegations in recent days about prioritizing profit over public good, does that concern you? It's Concerns me. It's something I looked at. I don't think these particular, this whistleblower is uh, massive, but sentiment changes quickly. And um, 
there's a large contingent in the Democratic Party that would like to see the breakup. So it, it's something you do have to be mindful of. I think the U.S. is in many different disputes and uh, with China and a strong U.S. technology sector is one of the ways they want to win. So I, I think they also have some incentive to keep U.S. big tech strong as well. Patrick, always good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Patrick Armstrong, CIO of Plurimi Investment Managers. Still to come, gas prices in Europe hitting an all-time high, stoking inflationary fears and pushing up government borrowing costs. So is this a good time to jump into solar stocks? We've got a guest on that coming up at 7.45. That's 8.45 Central European time. Make a point of staying with us for that conversation. And for more on Janet Yellen's debt ceiling warning you can check out the sport box podcast listen to cnbc's beyond the valley the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe join me arjun karpal and me tom chitty every week as we bring you insights into the top stories unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed now available on spotify apple music and google podcasts I want you all to know that the next segment is all about transitory, okay? That's me with my policymaker head on. If, as a journalist, I'm just going to tell you exactly how it is and you can work out whether it's transitory or not, okay? More UK factories plan to hike prices, okay? More UK factories plan to hike prices than at any point since 1989. That's according to a survey by the British Chamber of Commerce. Any point since 1989. So we've got, you know... A good 30 years plus there as well. The net share of manufacturers planning to raise prices jumped to 60%, while the proportion of services uh, firms planning to hike came in at 38%. That is the highest level since 2008. They will add to pressures, perhaps inflationary pressures on the UK economy, and may strengthen the Bank of England's case for a rate hike. But again, it's all transitory, yeah? Just when those economists tell you that as well, when you're paying your higher bills across the board and you're in uh, your homes in the UK and beyond as well. Just transitory, doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, Meanwhile, again, just transitory, Dutch wholesale gas futures, the benchmark for European gas, hit a record high on Tuesday uh, as the continent grapples with the prospect of shortages going into winter months. Gas contracts jumped 23% to over 117 euros per megawatt hour. Uh, That's up from just 18 euros only six months ago, okay? 117 euros per megawatt hour compared with 18 euros only six months ago. Gas prices uh, have uh, seen hikes as well. Most keenly felt in the UK where wholesale prices have tripled. Wholesale prices have tripled in the past two months, stoking inflationary fears and causing guilt yields to rise. On the back of course, people thinking that potentially we're gonna get some rate hikes. 10 year UK government bonds rose to more than 1% on Tuesday, the highest level in almost two and a half years. Um, Jeff, Karen, there are so many elements to this conversation, but why don't we stick to the energy side of it as well? Uh, And uh, just just a couple of questions really. And perhaps uh, one, what is OPEC plus playing at? Two, where is the shale response from the US, which is historically in the last five to 10 years uh, been what OPEC's both feared about? And three, 
Europe at this point is increasing its dependence on, on Russian gas at a time when Russia perhaps is lessening the flow and exacerbating the problem. So these are all big issues worthy of one conversation each, but I'll just make three very quick points, one on each as well. One, OPEC Plus clearly has a fear of a slowdown at some stage, otherwise they would accelerate because they're not stupid. One thing they're not over at OPEC and OPEC Plus is stupid. They know that if they push this too far, there is going to be an almighty recession, as we've talked about in previous shows. So clearly they fear, like Jeff has been pointing out for a very long time now, that things can't quite as rosy on the global economy uh, as many think they are. Uh, two, where is the shale response as well? Well, at the moment, there isn't one. They're terrified of uh, capital uh, increases um, at this stage of the cycle when they've done it previously, when they're under so much pressure from shareholders and others to lessen uh, shale um, increases uh, in production as well. But that's a bigger conversation as well. And three, well, the Russia story speaks for itself as well. Europe is increasing its flow of Russian gas. It will increase it more to Germany and other places where Nord Stream 2 is fully up and running as well. Is that wise? And again, I don't have an answer. I'm just saying at a time when our major exporter for the European continent of gas is, is perhaps being slightly slower in terms of some of the production, because that's what many of the pundits are saying. Is it great wisdom to decrease our energy security from other sources? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.